we're web developers in the world doing our best. What's going on? <laughs> Two web <laughs> developers on zany adventures. <laughs> you use a voice and you... And now there's like five of me reacting to realizing that I just used a voice. And uh, you're welcome, Tom. Please enjoy that gift. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Bike Shed, a weekly podcast from your friends at ThoughtBot about developing great software. I'm Steph Vicari. And I'm Chris Toomey. And together we're here to share a bit of what we've learned along the way. So hey, Chris, how's your week going? It is going well. Uh, I'm actually between uh, one of the clients that I was working with. We wound down last week, so I'm only working with the other client this week, thus only two days of actual billable client work. So I had Monday, Thursday, and Friday off, and it's been uh, delightful. I've been relaxing a little bit, trying to take this period of downtime, and especially because I, I often find the end of projects is uh, more intense. There was a lot of pairing at the end of the previous one to make sure knowledge had transferred and all those sort of things. And so it's been actually really nice having this uh, pointed break just at the end of it. It was not something that I did previously or not something that I purposefully structured, but now it just kind of naturally happened. And so I will be kicking off a new project starting next week. And so that'll get me back up to uh, work in all of the days of the week like people tend to do. Um, but yeah, it's been great. That's awesome that you've already completed like one of your client projects as being a freelancer. And now you've already got another one lined up for next week. Uh, do you still have your hours lined up that you're going to be splitting part of your time between both clients or what? How's that going to shake out? Yep, I'm going to stick to pretty much a similar schedule to what I had previously, where one of the clients I'm working with them two days a week and the other client I'm working three days a week. Have you found with rolling off projects and clients with ThoughtBot and then now doing it as a freelancer, does that process feel very similar? Uh, yeah, very, very similar. I think that the same sort of mindset of wanting to set up clients for success, whether I'm there or not, or whether ThoughtBot's there or not, uh, and wanting to make sure I don't take things out the door with me, don't take knowledge and don't take information or ideas about how things are working or anything like that. So again, a lot of my time at the end of that rotation was just spent pairing. So there was less feature development or anything like that, but it was making sure that the folks who would be taking over the code base were well positioned to do that. Um, which is, uh, I absolutely love pairing and it's exhausting. And so it really, it made it a very pointed end of like, and break. And then I rested for a little while. But yeah, so it's been a relaxing week, enjoyable, but uh, also excited to get back into it and to start onto a new project and explore some likely technologies in an organization that I haven't worked with and you know some other things. So uh, I don't actually know all of the details about it, but I am very excited about the prospects. So I'll certainly fill you in as I, as I figure out more. But yeah, that's been my week. How about you? What have you been up to? I have been up to setting up my new keyboard, the ErgoDox that I referenced earlier. Those are some good clickety clacks. People are going to love me or hate me for that. Uh, but uh, I'm very excited. Uh, it's been a while. It's been sitting on my desk or in a drawer for a while, and I have finally started playing with it today. I'll be frank. I can't type for with it yet. I'm working on it. And... It made me laugh because I plugged it in and then my Mac was like, let's confirm, let's identify this new keyboard that's plugged in. And I already failed that test because it was like, <laughs> click this button that's next to the shift. And I was like, I don't, uh, yeah, I don't know where that is. <laughs> so, uh, so it's already been a fun couple of hours just playing with it. I can say that I already like the column layout. Like it's 
new and it's going to take some time getting used to, but I can tell that it's something that I already like. Uh, but yeah, it's very limited, the the bit of playing that I've done with it. So I'll be spending probably a good chunk of the weekend uh, just practicing typing on my new keyboard and getting used to the layout. And it has its own default layout that it ships with. But then Carl Rays, who is the thought botter that sold me their ErgoDocs keyboard, they also provided me with the layout that they like. So at some point, I'm going to practice with the default and then transition or at least look at the layout that he has because I suspect that he has a really nice layout that I'll enjoy as well. So yeah, that's uh, been my adventure for today. That is very exciting. I'm I'm interested to see like how it goes for you and how long is the on-ramp until you feel like you're back to productive. And I've also heard from folks when they make that sort of more drastic switch that they can lean into it as a moment to like, let me really double down and make sure I'm very much touch typing and getting actually to like a higher level. Like I'm, I don't know what I touch type at now. I sort of touch type, but if I were to switch over, I'd be like, oh, this is the time where I'm going to do a bunch of typing tutorials and really get into it. So I don't know if you have plans of like leaning into this all the more or just like, I would like to be capable again. I'm going to go for capable. Okay. <laughs> I'm going I'm to walk the bar before low. you run. I get it. That makes sense. I probably will lean in a little bit into the touch typing. Uh, and that's also the reason I waited till Friday to set this up even towards the end of Friday, because then I didn't want to feel too frustrated. And then I'll have like Saturday and Sunday to play around with it. So come Monday, I won't just, you know, get frustrated and like kick it off my desk and move over to something else. So that's the plan is to get capable over the weekend. So then Monday, then I can really start to ramp up with it. Gotcha. Well, I wish you the best of luck. What uh, what does this put your keyboard count at? Uh, I have three. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so if we're if we're telling our truths here, uh, I'm remembering now that a couple of Fridays back, uh, I was hanging out at my house. I had a beer and uh, I was on the internet. And as often happens, I purchased an item. And I'm just now remembering this because it's going to take a little while for it to show up. But I bought the Atreus keyboard. I think it doesn't ship to like August or something. It was very much an impulse buy. I was like, no, you know what? I want it. And then I bought it and now I'm waiting. But I'm excited for that to show up. A similar like split layout sort of thing in column and, and whatnot. And I'm hoping it will give me slightly better ergonomics. But yeah. I am so excited that you're going down this path with me because then we can complain about it together. And it's really fun. Like the first time you plug it in and it's such a different layout and you're like, yeah, I can't do this anymore. I don't know why. That was really fun for me and hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> that's terrifying that's like in dreams where you're like i know i know how to run but for some reason my legs won't do it anymore like i don't uh, that that feeling makes me uncomfortable but i'm gonna push through the discomfort and learn to use this expensive for me also a third aftermarket keyboard uh this is all your fault <laughs> it's not it's greg fisher's fault and this he is all knows greg it fisher's fault. he does <laughs> i think he's quite proud of it actually but I imagine he is. Uh, but cool. Well, uh, do you have plans for your other keyboards? Are you going to sell them, keep them? Do you know? No, I I don't know. I really like them still. And so I might at least keep one of them because I've, yeah, I think I have two duplicates because I have the one for the office and one for home. And now I just use the, the home one. So I don't know. Maybe I'll sell one of them. I don't know how good the market for reselling mechanical keyboards is. Probably fine. Like I think they're all in great shape, but I don't know. I'll figure it out or I won't think about it at all and I'll just put it to the side and forget. That's definitely a possibility. <laughs> yeah, I, I haven't decided either. So we'll see. But um, in other sort of tech news, uh, following on, I think it was like two weeks ago, we talked about Tailwind. I shared my uh, deep abiding love for Tailwind. But I left off a piece of the picture, which is part of the integration or how I ended up working with it in Rails. Because the 
you do end up with a lot of repetitive class sequences and ideally you can encapsulate those in things and rails is like partials and views and things aren't the best at that like react components work really well for this sort of thing or other view systems actually have a lot of good support but what i ended up reaching for on the Rails side was uh github's view component library have you seen this no i haven't seen that it is a nifty little thing so it's an alternative to partials so partials I think of as being associated to like a specific type of resource. So like you have the partial for a user in your system and it renders them in a certain way or a partial for the project. And so now you can loop over collections or do whatever. View components are Ruby classes that you write that take in some data and then they either can have a render method directly on them that can return markup pretty directly or you can have essentially an adjacent HTML ERB file that will get rendered in addition to it. But the class, the component class, ends up having methods on it. And so as you find yourself having more and more conditional logic and views or more, like say you want to build a button component and you want to have that be the same everywhere, but also have variants. And this variant, like the danger variant, doesn't have a loading property because that doesn't make sense. You can use Ruby and use a Ruby class to encapsulate all that logic. And so it ends up being a, a much nicer, cleaner easier to test, easier to work with, just really a, a very nice abstraction that I've enjoyed both in the context of Tailwind because it happens to marry really well with the idea of wrapping up little common sets of classes, but it also is just a really nice pattern. And frankly, the view layer is always one in, in Rails that I've struggled the most with, that I felt like I can never remember how to render a partial in a collection. And what if I want to like wrap it in a common thing? And I always feel like I'm relearning the view layer and these view components are actually just very nice and straightforward. That sounds really nice. I'll have to look into it because, yeah, I often forget that syntax and and like how to write that particular approach. So that sounds like a, a nice way to not have to remember the complexity as much, but be able to lean on those extracted components. There's also another nicety that uh, I've always found it very odd that Rails uses instance variables as the magic method that it passes data from a controller into a view. And then if you don't do anything, it's easy to like reference that instance variable in a partial as well which is not a good thing to do because then you have this implicit coupling between the different layers. And so the view components don't use any of that. They instead expect you to pass in the data explicitly and you can have positional or keyword arguments or whatever, but it makes the data passing much more explicit and obvious and prevents the leaking of instance variables into leaf nodes, start your view system, which that alone is worth the price of admission in my mind, which is free, of course, because it's open source. Yeah, I'm with you. I really like that bit. That was one of my favorite improvements with upgrading to Ember Octane is how they've adjusted the arguments so they're no longer just defined on the class, but you have an idea as to where it's being passed in. And it's far more clear now to understand like where the variables live and the fact that they're being passed in versus being defined on the class. So yeah, you kind of have me sold right there. I'll have to at least sold a look into it. So you're telling me there's a chance. <laughs> When using the GitHub view components, is it defining its own DSL? I can sense the like hesitation in your voice as you ask the question. Uh, no, I think it just uses render as a keyword in the view, which is the same way that like partials and things like that work. But you end up just instantiating the class or I think you might call call or there's a specific method, but you're interacting with a class. So each of these components is a Ruby class and your render component dot call and then you pass in the arguments and there's things for passing blocks. So you can have sort of layouts that wrap around nested content and you have nice sort of inversion of control and other things that are, again, more obvious and less subtleties around like path lookup and things like that has always confused the heck out of me when I'm using partials and then passing a block to the partial. It's like, what? If I do it like this, then suddenly the path needs to be inverted and it's sad. And so it's very much more familiar and explicit in a way that I really like. 
That does sound really nice. Yeah, I always get a little hesitant with there's like a new DSL that's being introduced into my life. So it's funny, you and I both seem to be on paths that are tracking more in like the UI side of the world, where you've been very engaged with like Tailwind CSS. And then with a client project that I'm working on, we are also reevaluating and looking to improve the consistency of our design system across the applications. Because right now, implementing a button is complicated because there are many versions of a button and you're not really sure where to go copy it from and which one's really like the best version to copy it from and which one to mimic. So we are starting to rethink that And then we're also working on separating the CSS from our Rails and Ember app because they're co-located right now in the same repo. And a lot of the styles that were introduced are living in the Rails app, but we would really like to move away from any of those styles being defined in the Rails app because the only thing we have that really needs those styles is an admin area. So we can still have the styles for the Rails server rendered admin. But for everything else, for Ember, we really want that to be in CSS modules and only live in the Ember app. So if we wanted to separate the applications, I don't know if that's where we're headed. But if that's something that we wanted to do, it's very clear that they each have their own responsibilities and ownership of their styles. So it's kind of fun that you and I are both on like this very like engrossed sort of like improved UI components and reusable design components that encapsulate like all their styles. Uh, So along that thread, we are introducing Storybook, which I'm really excited about. I don't know if that's something that you've gotten to use. I've poked around with, I think it was Storybook. There's a few others in that space, but I've definitely used one of those. And I think it was Storybook and definitely enjoyed it. It was a great project. Awesome. Yeah. So for anyone that hasn't used Storybook, which honestly includes me, but I'm about to change that (laughs) in the next couple of weeks. Uh, So Storybook, it's an open source JavaScript tool is for developing UI components in isolation. So it makes the creation of an organized UI system easier to build and also easier to document, which is really nice. It also has its own Webpack setup and dev server. So you run it alongside of your application, but it can also live inside the same like code base. So we're going to introduce it into our code base that we have for like the Rails and the Ember application. And then apparently this is the part I haven't gotten to yet, but once you build out a component, Storybook lets you create a story file where you can then import that component and create various states for that component in like a sandbox environment and then document. So that way when someone wants to look for like a particular button or they know they need to add a button to a page. They can go there and see what's available to them versus like searching through the code base. So right now we're adding one of the teams is adding Storybook and which has support for Ember, which is really exciting because it really started out focusing on React, Angular, and Vue. So one team is adding it into the code base and my team right now we're designing or we're implementing some of those UI specific components. And then we're going to start adding them to Storybook once it's available. And then that will be the new flow as we start to transition to our new style is that every time we add a UI component, we want to make sure that we also store it in the storybook. And then over time, we'll get to remove all of the old CSS because we'll have like this new clear area that's for all the new CSS going forward. That sounds awesome. I'm interested to hear how everyone's experience with that goes. In general, like the promise of those sort of tools, storybook and style guidest is the other one that I was thinking of. But the promise of them where you just have this library and go in and you can see like, oh, that's how I render a danger button. Got it. And now take that into the app and be building on nicely abstracted components and, and all of those things. That sounds fantastic. It's one of those things that I think is a lot more work than it looks like you end up with this nicely organized artifact, but choosing all of the different variants and making that available and making it accessible to everyone that's it's a ton of work. And when you get to that end state, it's so fantastic. 
I've worked on projects where that was part of the goal was building that sort of system out. And it took a lot longer than I expected. I hope it goes faster for you. I think it'll be a blend because I, I agree with you. It's a lot more work than expected. There's two, there's going through. I do like the approach that we're taking. So right now we're literally focused on buttons. So we are introducing the buttons, but we're only introducing what we need for a particular page. So instead of trying to say we're introducing this new button and we're going to do like this grand sweep of the app and introduce like all the primary like call to action buttons, we've identified one page and we're going to say we're going to update this page and we're going to put the buttons here. So that way we're building as we go and we're only adding in the requirements that we need. So that's making it easier to ship in small pieces. And then the other part that I think it comes down to is a lot of communication. It's the idea that like there are several teams in this engineering organization and we want everybody to be aware that we're all rallying around this particular goal and this is what we're striving for. That seems to really help as well. And then as we're designing the UI components, we're trying to avoid coding in some of those escape hatches. So when designing like a button component, we could do like the spread operator to accept any attributes to say, if you want to pass any CSS classes or anything to the button component, you could. And instead we're saying, nope, you can give us like an engineering class, which is what we're using for targeting like a button or something during testing. But outside of that, like we don't want to just blindly accept anything. We're trying to be very communicative about this is already styled. And if you need to make a change, we need to think about it from the higher design level of how this would impact all buttons versus this one particular page where you need to do something special. I like that approach, although that really gets at the the hard work, the like iceberg complexity of choosing that API and limiting it down, but also being sufficiently powerful. And that is a difficult line to walk. Uh, it's definitely doable, but it is the sort of thing that what's obviously correct in one instance is way too limiting in another. But then also you look at usage when you free things up and you're like, well, not like that. Never like that. And so finding that middle line is very difficult. But I, again, I wish you well. This is more just me being like, yeah, in the past when I did this, uh, we made some mistakes. And so I hope that you uh, just have a wonderful and straightforward time. Well, we'll have to keep chatting about it. So that way, if if there's anything that we're doing that you're like, oh, that feels like I've been down that road, let me warn you, friend, <laughs> then we can have those conversations. There is a really nice example of Storybook for anyone that hasn't seen it before. Coursera has theirs hosted where it shows all their designs. So we'll be sure to include that in the show links in case anyone wants to check it out. But yeah, I'm really excited because I know Storybook has been used by several thought botters and they seem really engaged by it and have enjoyed their experience with it. So that's always heartening for me. And then I'll get to add it to my my toolbox. Cool. Yeah, I definitely I look forward to hearing how it goes. And I hope my admonitions have not scared you. They don't seem to, which is good. That was not at all my intention. We're going to take a quick break to tell you about today's sponsor, Scout APM. Scout APM is quickly becoming my go-to performance monitoring tool for Rails apps. I love opening it up to see a prioritized list of issues that I can quickly knock out before end users ever see them. With the weekly digest and alerts, I can rest easy knowing that Scout will let me know if issues arise. Ultimately, Scout APM empowers developers to spend more time building great products by minimizing the effort required to identify and resolve performance issues. Scout's developer-centric approach quickly pinpoints N plus one queries, memory bloat, and other abnormalities. Their tracing logic saves me a ton of time by tying bottlenecks back to the line of code causing the issue. Give Scout a try for free today, and you'll have the performance insights you've been dreaming of within four minutes. Sign up through scoutapm.com slash bikeshed, and Scout will donate $5 to the open source project of your choice when you deploy. 
But let's see, in other uh, things in my week, one thing that I've picked up that I keep revisiting at various points, but I really enjoy each time I pick it up is a project called Adder Extras, Adder underscore extras. Have you seen this one? That sounds familiar. Would you walk me through it? It's from Barsoom. That's the company or the the GitHub organization. Um, But it's a collection of almost like class level macros, similar to like adder reader, adder writer, adder accessor, those sort of things that you would use in classes. It's another set of those that make it easy to define common class interfaces. So this is a class and it takes two arguments, the invoice and employee, and it wants to uh, make them available as private adder readers. So all of that is like you have to definitionalize, take the arguments, assign them to instance variables, have private, say, add a reader below that. There's a whole bunch of ceremony. And so with this project, you can just say patter initialize. So p adder underscore initialize. And then the symbol name of the two positional arguments that you want to take in. And now you have all of that. And so the way it describes itself as uh, lowers the barrier of entry to working with classes without the downsides of using struct, because it turns out there are some subtleties of using struct. I've also used open struct in the past, but that's even worse. Uh, it has more subtleties and edge cases and it's too permissive i would say and so this is just a really really nice project that has a whole bunch of them one of them that i actually really like is the method object so this is the pattern where like you want to make a quote-unquote service object or a command object so like invoice generator dot run is the class level interface that you want and that should take in some arguments initialize pass those through then call the internal call method and there's just like a bunch of wiring up and passing of values and so you can just say i want to have a method object and this is the parameter that i take in and you just you you include that or you use the macro essentially at the top of the class it's not actually a macro it's just a method but i don't know it's ruby so it looks like a macro But yeah, it's just a really nice collection of super useful things that can take some of the noise out of these. And I think the thing that I like about it is it encourages using classes. It encourages some of the the default things working in the instance space as opposed to the class space, all that kind of stuff. I do love the class level methods. So that way I can call like the class name dot like call or run or whatever that method's going to be instead of having to do the new parameters and then the the method like call or run. I'm a huge fan of that mainly for testing. That's honestly, I'm, it's a little bit because I'm lazy and I kind of like it from the interface too, but it's 99.9% because it just makes it easier to test. So then if I want to confirm that this class received this message, then I don't have to go through the whole song and dance of actually having like the fake initialized object and then having that stubbed out in the test versus just saying I expect this class to receive this method with these parameters. So that sounds really nice if it's going to take away some of that boilerplate for me because a number of times where I will lean into using those class level methods, folks will ask and say like, well, why do you still have to define the method or you have initialized it goes with it and then gets confusing because you technically have an interface where someone could do either approach and you no longer have like this consistent way of interfacing with this class. I I don't know if I like the abstraction on top of it. So if someone is new and coming to this code base and then they're seeing like that method object and then the name of that method that they could call, that would take a moment to be like, where is this coming from? What is this? This doesn't look like the classic Ruby on Rails that I'm used to. And it's not as obvious as like Ember React where it shows where stuff is being imported. That is one of the things that I do find that I'm really enjoying about like Ember React is because then it's very obvious to see like, oh, I can see this came from this area. So I understand more of the pattern that's expected here, or at least I can go look up documentation. But in Ruby and Rails, like I feel like I would see that and get a little stuck and I'd have to ask in Slack and be like, which is fine, but I'm a little hesitant there. Have you run into anything like that where folks get tripped up by it? Not specifically with 
at our extras, but that like general concern is definitely something that I consider and that this is on the other side of that. I feel like the utility, I want to say that it's worth it and specifically because it encourages other behavior that I think is beneficial that I might be happy to make that trade off. Um, but it's interesting because so much of the work in Rails, it's like, well, where did any of these methods come from? All of this is magic and nonsense. And so I agree that like maybe we draw the line and say, let's not add any more to that. But at the same time, they're Googleable. Like if you Google any of those methods, you will find this project very directly. So in that sense, they're nice versus like the magic methods that appear on every class by reflecting off of the database columns, the columns on the table. That's not greppable. It's not Googleable. It's nothing. Well, maybe it's greppable because it'll be in the DB schema unless you're working in a schemaless world. So, you know, there's there's stuff there. And I don't know how to draw that line in a concrete way of what do we expect to be common knowledge within a project or what are we okay, how are we okay with drawing that line in the sand? And what do we want to be discoverable, explicit, etc.? The trade-off between boilerplate and abstractions uh, I don't know. These are sort of the core of programming right here. So uh, we got to the heart of the thing today. But I agree. I think that's a very good consideration. I find myself ever so slightly on the, this seems worth it. But I think other things I would definitely not pick up for this reason. So I like that this was sort of your frame as you uh, took a look at it. I do like circling back to what you're talking earlier about the pattern, how that will extrapolate or how that will reduce some of the boilerplate that we need for having like adder readers and adder writers. That part I like, which I was just trying to reason with myself. I'm like, why do I feel more comfortable with that one versus the other one that's extracting a lot of like the initialization and then the class level method? And I don't know if it's just because it looks more obviously different to me. Like I can see the pattern. I'm like, that's not Rails. And then it's more obvious to me that I can look it up and say this is coming from somewhere else. But then again, that's just that sort of inherent knowledge of I know to like look elsewhere versus like if I'm looking at the other one, I think it's method object. Is that how you define? Mm -hmm. Yes, it's method object. Yeah, uh, it's not as obvious to me where I can't tell someone just got fancy or if this is coming from another project. Honestly, I guess it's both. Someone got fancy and it's coming from another project. But yeah, it's it's an interesting crossroads to be in to avoid some of the extra cruff that's there to avoid some of the additional setup versus but it may take time for like the next person who's onboarding to the project to understand like where that's being defined. So yeah, I, I don't know. I don't have a good answer for that one. The one thing that comes to mind, staying within the context of Ruby and Rails, uh, because I think other languages and frameworks, things can be more obvious because it is statically analyzable and the system can, like you can hover on a word and be like, what is this? And then the system, like your IDE will be able to tell you. Ruby really struggles with that because of how dynamic it is uh, and because of the magic of Rails and generating every method at, at runtime. But I'm actually super intrigued, and it's slowly ratcheting up on my list of things to look at is Sorbet from Stripe, the gradual type annotation layer, I think is the way to describe it for Ruby. I'm never sure of the idea of like gradual types and bringing it into a language as dynamic as Ruby, but the fact that Ruby broadly for Ruby 3 is considering having some level of type hinting, like Python has it in other languages, I'm hopeful that it could be a useful thing. And Sorbet also has a language server and a thing that's like, I understand your program in total. I can infer all of these things and then their types by virtue of that. But I also know like, where did this method come from? I know that Rails generated it. And so I'm interested in like, is that just a better way to write Ruby and Rails apps just because of that additional layer of, it's not static analysis, it's a different, I guess it's static analysis, but it's it's cool. I want that. 
I would also like that. Yeah, I haven't looked into sorbet. I'd be excited if you took a dive into it and then reported back because it's something that intrigues me, but I just haven't had a reason or made time to go look into it. And that's a good point too. I often forget like I can go to the command line and then look up the source of a method. So then if I am see something new that then I can check there to understand where it's being defined if I feel like it's maybe it's some metaprogramming or if it's coming from another package. So that helps address some of my concerns within bringing in something that's not as easily recognizable. Well, cool. Yeah, let me know how it goes if you find time to dive into Sorbet. So it sounds like, I know for me, this has kind of been a week of new beginnings with ErgoDocs and Storybook and some other exciting things that are going on. Uh, So I'll have more to report back in future episodes. But on that note, shall we wrap up? Let's wrap up. Show notes for this episode can be found at bikeshed.fm. The show is produced and edited by Tom Obarski. If you enjoyed listening, one really easy way to support the show is to leave us a quick rating or even a review in iTunes as it really helps other people find the show. If you have feedback for this or any of our other episodes, you can reach us at at underscore bike shed on Twitter or I'm at Chris Toomey. And I'm at S. Vicari. Or you can email us at hosts at bikeshed.fm. Thanks so much for listening to The Bike Shed and we'll see you next week. Bye. Bye. This podcast was brought to you by ThoughtBot. ThoughtBot is your expert design and development partner. Let's make your product and team a success.